0: I'd like to read a couple of verses from the 13th Psalm as introduction to our prayer this morning. In the 13th Psalm, we read these words. I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Father, I know sometimes we feel oppressed. We feel like... Uh, the world is caving in on us and yet we have to admit that through our lives you have dealt bountifully with us you have blessed us by allowing us to live in this era of time in this country and to be brought into your kingdom and uh, for all of these things we give thanks and yet lord uh for those things that do come into our lives that cause distress we trust you for strength and wisdom We pray that even in our pain and in our suffering, that the glory of God will be seen in our lives because we want to be truly agents of blessing in this world. Father, we thank you for the Word of God which teaches us who you are and about the men and women who have lived for thousands of years under the leadership of your Spirit. We thank you for the story of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz and for the others that have been, were a part of this, um, this story. And we pray, Father, that we will glean the truths today that you would speak to our hearts. I thank you for each individual here. Pray that you will meet each need and bless each life. And as your word is proclaimed today, throughout this piece of property, in, in the other classes and in the services of this hour, that you will be glorified. For it's the name of Christ we pray, amen. In the book of James, the first chapter and the 27th verse, we read these words, This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. I think through the Apostle James, the Lord instructs us that true expression of genuine faith includes manifesting the nature, the character of God, by ministering to the helpless in our society. Because that is God's nature. His attribute is, one of his attributes is love. Another of his attributes is mercy, kindness. uh, All of these things which we see so absent in our society much of the time. The word visit, which is used in this particular a passage doesn't mean you just go and say, Hi, how are you doing, and leave. The word visit means to minister to, in this, in this uh, uh, context, to bless. Throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, we find that God reaches out to the powerless. God reaches out to the outcasts in society. And the primary purpose of the law of the Goel, which has been the, the, the key law that this book illustrates, was to put flesh on the attributes of God in order to rescue those who have fallen on hard times. And, and that's really what you and I are about if we're truly members of the kingdom of God. We are to put flesh on the attributes of God. We are to do the things that God would do. We're to be His hands and His feet in carrying out God's work and blessing society and one another. Naomi and Ruth, of course, were well qualified to be recipients of God's provision. I think Boaz probably had thought about it, but he had done nothing to fulfill the law of the goel or the kinsman redeemer up to the moment when Ruth directly challenged him to do so. I think he was a bit chagrined about it when he thought about it after she had come to him that he had procrastinated and allowed Naomi and Ruth to get into the straits that they were in. I mean, to the place where Naomi was going to have to sell the property, which is the last thing a Hebrew would do, sell their property, in order to survive. And so, what he does now is he acts immediately. The very morning after the night that Ruth had come to him, he goes to the city gate to see about bringing about the legal activation of the law of the Goel. And you remember last time we read in, the, in Ruth that he challenged the nearer relative as he came by to sit down and to, in the hearing of all these elders here, proclaim whether or not he was willing to fulfill the function of the kinsman redeemer. Was he willing to buy the property? Oh, yeah, I'm willing to buy the property and marry Ruth. Oh, well, that's involved in it too, huh? Well, in that case, no, I can't do that because he said he would jeopardize his own inheritance. And we talked a little bit last week about what that might mean. Boaz now knew what he had to do. All the hurdles, all the barriers have been removed. He knows what he must do. So let's read again in Ruth, fourth chapter, beginning at the seventh verse. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redemption and exchange of land to confirm any manner, matter. A man removed his sandal and gave it to another. And this was the manner of attestation in Israel. So the closest relative said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself. And he removed his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders of all the people, You are witnesses today that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech, and all that belonged to Killian and Malan. Moreover, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malan, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance, so that the name of the deceased may not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. You are witnesses today. And all the people who were in the court and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah. Both of them built the house of Israel. And may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. Moreover, may your house be like the house Perez, whom... I think there was quite a crowd there. It was getting kind of exciting here, you know. I mean, this guy, is going to buy the property. He's going to marry this wife, this woman in Levirate marriage. She's a Moabitess. She's not even an Israelite. It was quite a big deal. And what we discover here is, of course, the reaction of the town elders. They enthusiastically said, we are witnesses, we have heard it, and, and we confirm it, that you have done this, and the other man has passed over his right, he's given it to you, and you're taking the responsibility, you're buying the land, and you're marrying Ruth. I mean, it was, for all practical purposes, said and done, at least, legally. Furthermore, though, they went to, on to say, we bless Boaz and Ruth. They proclaimed a blessing upon Boaz and Ruth. And they asked the Lord to make Ruth as fruitful as Rachel and Leah had been. Of course, they're the founding mothers of the uh, Israelite nation, Jacob's two wives. And what is interesting is that they bore eight sons to Jacob and were responsible for the other four, even though they didn't personally bear the other four. They were, in effect, like surrogates for the other four. So mothers to the whole twelve tribal chiefs of Israel. Interestingly, we discover in this passage that they said, May she be like Rachel and Leah. Hmm. Interesting order that they put it in. Because Rachel is mentioned first, although she was not Jacob's first wife. He married Leah first. Rachel did not give him his first son. Leah gave him his first son. And she was not the mother. Rachel was not the mother of Judah who, of course, was the ancestor to Bethlehem. And so, it's very interesting that she should be first, although Leah was first in all of these things. But I think she was mentioned first because she was Jacob's first love. There was no doubt about that. And like Ruth, she had been barren. So there's this, this comparison here between Rachel and Ruth, both barren up to this point. Additionally, though, and I think what makes it really relevant, uh, if we go back to Genesis chapter 35 we will discover that Rachel was very much in the minds of people of Bethlehem. And that was because, if you go to the 35th chapter of Genesis and read at verse 16, Then they journeyed from Bethel, and when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, which is, of course, Bethlehem, Rachel began to give birth, and she suffered severe labor. And it came about, when she was in severe labor, that the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for now you have another son. And it came about, as her soul was departing, for she died, that she named him Benoni, which uh, meant son of her sorrows. But his father, that's Jacob, called him Benjamin, son of my right hand. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her grave, and that is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. So it's interesting, there is a connection here between Rachel and Bethlehem. She, was, she died giving birth to Benjamin just outside that city. And so the city sort of became the city of Rachel in the sense that you go there today, there, there is a, a kind of a little tomb sitting there, which is called the tomb of Rachel, which you can see there uh, just outside the city. And so I think it was this connection uh, maybe that caused them to put Rachel's name uh, before Leah in the order there. This passage also helps us to see the connection between Ephrathah and Bethlehem. They are synonyms for the same city. The elders also proclaimed another blessing. They proclaimed the blessing of wealth and fame upon Boaz. Now, the Hebrew word for wealth here that's used in this particular passage doesn't so much refer to money, although it doesn't exclude money, but it refers to valor. It refers to a worthy character, so wealthy in a bigger sense than money sense. The idea is the one that's behind the passage in Proverbs, uh, the, the verse in Proverbs 22:1, where we read, "A good name is to be more desired than riches; favor is better than silver and gold." Something which our society has long forgotten. In our society, we sell our souls for the buck, rather than maintaining. Uh, A good name regardless of what it means uh, financially. The blessing of fame, which was was proclaimed upon him, would come largely through his progeny. Uh, He would call out a name for himself, as it were, uh, down through the centuries by virtue of his descendants, those that would come from, from Boaz. And of course, Boaz didn't know it at the time, but this would be fulfilled beyond his wildest dreams. He had no concept that one day from him would come a great-grandson who would be known as King David, the greatest king in the history of Israel. And he also, of course, could not even possibly dream of the fact that a thousand years after David would come Messiah, and Messiah would actually carry, to make it modern scientifically correct, the DNA of Boaz in his human body. So verse 12 of this particular passage uh, sort of uh, expands on this. It says, Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah through the offspring which the Lord shall give you by this young woman. Now Perez, Perez was the son of Judah by Tamar. And Perez is mentioned here for, I think, at least two reasons. Not only was Perez the ancestor of Boaz, because it went Judah, Perez, and on down the line to Boaz, but, now you have to follow this here, Um, Perez was the grandfather of Caleb. You remember Caleb. Caleb had a second wife whose name was Ephrath. Ephrath? Ephratha? And her son by Caleb was Salma, who is called in the scripture the father of Bethlehem. So, through Perez comes Caleb, and Caleb's second wife, Ephrath, the city is called Ephrath, or Ephratha. Her son, by Perez, is called the father of Bethlehem. So, you see all this connection here together. Tamar, interesting uh, lady. I I think she's mentioned not only because she was the mother of Perez, but because Judah, rather unintentionally, performed the leveret function through her. And again, you remember the story. Judah had married his oldest son to Tamar, Ur. Er. He had died, and there was no child, and so he married his next son, Onan, to, uh, to uh, Tamar, and, and there was no son uh, because Onan refused to do what he was supposed to do, to refused to impregnate her, and as a result, God killed him. And then, he would, and then Judah wouldn't give his third son, Sheila, to Tamar because he thought, I've lost her, I've lost Onan, married to this girl. I don't think this is a good idea. And so he promised, but never did. And so later, of course, as you know, she, she uh, disguised herself as a prostitute, and Judah impregnated his own daughter-in-law. And that's how uh, Perez came into existence, along with his twin brother. It's kind of sordid. But I think that's one of the amazing things of Scripture, how God works through what appears to be a sordid history to bring about the story of redemption. And if nothing else, it helps us all to realize that none of us is so, so out of it that we have no right or privilege to be drawn into the kingdom of the Messiah. There there is no one who is so vile or, or so, from society's point of view, such an outcast, such a pariah, that he, he cannot be or she cannot be drawn into the blessing of redemption through our kinsman, Redeemer, Jesus. Well, let's read the last passage here of the book of Ruth, beginning of verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son, Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a Redeemer today, and may His name become famous in Israel. May He also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age, for your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has given birth to Him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse and the neighbor woman the neighbor women gave him a name saying a son shall has been born to Naomi so they named him Obed he is the father of Jesse the father of David now these are the generations of Perez to Perez was born Hezron to Hezron was born Ram to Ram Amminadab and to Amminadab was born Nashon and to Nashon Salmon and to Salmon was born Boaz to Boaz Obed and to Obed was born Jesse and to Jesse David you know, sometimes we face situations and we think, how am I ever going to get out of this hole? And yet you look at the story of Naomi and you see how quickly God can turn things around. This whole situation for Naomi was a tragedy. She loses her, her husband in Moab and then her two daughters-in-law each lose their husbands. And, and, and so she's left alone except for Ruth commits herself to, to come with her. And she comes back. Virtually a woman with nothing. And God has turned that tragedy into victory. And I would say that probably not much more than 12 months passed from tragedy to victory. In fact, from only two or three months from the time they left Moab until the marriage of Boaz and Ruth. The woman had told her friends, Don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant or delightful. But call me Mara, which means bitterness. I and mean, that's how depressed she was when she came back to the land without her husband and without her sons. And I emphasized that before when we went through that section. To us today, to, to lose a mate is, is a very difficult thing. To lose children is a very difficult thing. But in that society, the difficulty almost never wore off because you were looked upon as almost like a pariah if you had no husband or if you had no sons. Because you were cut off. You you, you were no longer a part of the lineage of Israel. You you hit a brick wall. It was all over for you. She's been redeemed now. Suddenly she's been redeemed by God through the institution which he had put into the law hundreds of years before when he proclaimed it to Moses, the law of the kinsman redeemer of the goel. And of course, unbeknownst to her, this concept of kinsman redeemer, through which the redemption was temporal, momentary, paved the way to understand the concept of the incarnate kinsman redeemer with capital K, capital R, whose redemption is eternal. There's no, it it, it is not a coincidence that the story of Naomi, of Ruth, and of the Goel was set in Bethlehem not a coincidence, because as you know, it will be in Bethlehem that the capital K, capital R, Kinsman Redeemer would be born. As, as I thought of that, um, I, I came to this passage, and just let me read you a few verses from Titus. Titus, the second chapter, we read these words. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us, be our goal l, from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession zealous for good deeds. And I, as you know, as I thought about this, it all fits in here. We, we find Jesus Christ becoming our kinsman-redeemer. Kinsman in that he came in the flesh. That was the s- whole point of becoming human, so that he might experience temptation as we do, experience tragedy as we do, have emotions as we have, so that he, as the perfect man, could lay down his life and become our kinsman Redeemer. And out of this will come not only a righteous life, but you'll notice at the end of this passage, what is the point of having a purified people for his own possession? Zealous for good deeds. The point of the church is to perform good deeds in this world, to enflesh God and to do godly works here, not just to entertain ourselves by coming and sitting and you know, and listening to music and a sermon and going home and and watching TV and forgetting everything. Uh, The point is that we are to be God in the flesh to this world and to one another. And I think that's what we find in the case of Boaz. He is enfleshing uh, the kinsman-redeemer idea on behalf of uh, Boaz, uh, on behalf of Naomi and Ruth. I think it wasn't very long. After Naomi, uh, after Ruth and Boaz were married, that she became pregnant. Now, it, it doesn't give a time frame here. It just says in verse thirteen. So Boaz took Ruth. She became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. I mean, all kinds of time is compressed into that one little verse. Now, you know, did she become pregnant uh, on the eve of their wedding? I, I don't know, but fairly soon, I believe, after they were married, she became pregnant. She had been barren up to that point. She had been barren as long as she had been married to Malan. Now, we don't know how long she was married to Malan. We know it was less than 10 years because that was how long Naomi was in uh, Moab with her husband. But he died during that time. And then uh, Malan died and Killian died. And so we, we don't know the time frame. But there was a period of time with which, uh, for which she was married to Malan and she was barren during that time. And, and the barrenness seems to be Indicated as a problem because it says in this verse, and the Lord enabled her to conceive. Uh, sort of the wording that you find when you read about uh, Rachel finally conceiving or Sarah finally conceiving. God intervened in order to make this happen. She bore a son, probably approximately a, ton, a, a, a year, maybe a little more than a year, we don't know exactly, but I don't think much more than a year. From the moment when she had said to Naomi, I will go with you. Where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. I don't think it was much more than a year from when she made that statement that she gave birth to a son. I don't think Ruth or Naomi had much hope in the future when they left Moab, especially not Naomi. Ruth was young and She might not have had as much serious thought about the future as Naomi had. She had enough serious thought to commit herself to Naomi and to Naomi's uh, God. But Naomi knew the situation in Bethlehem. And and she didn't have uh, much hope for the future. Well, if you go with me, you know, you might end up like I'm ending up, uh, you know, without a husband for the rest of your life. But they went in faith as weak as that faith may be. You know, sometimes I think we chide ourselves because we feel our, our faith is pretty weak, and often it probably is pretty weak. But God takes that weak faith, and, and out of it he brings wonderful fruit. Jesus even said, if your faith be as, as a grain of mustard seed, which we're told is a very teeny little seed, that, that God will, will work with that. And so here we have something that Naomi and Ruth probably could not even have dreamed of, has come within about 12 months to be a reality. And God delights in that. God delights in bringing joy to his people. Joy, (laughs) unspeakable sometimes. Joy we couldn't even conceive of. This, I think, and of course, for, for Naomi, not only is the seemingly impossible happening, she has a grandson, Ruth has a son, But their Redeemer is the noblest man in Bethlehem and also a man of considerable wealth. (laughs) Not that that uh, was a big deal, but it didn't hurt. This is a clear illustration, I believe, of the truth that the powerless in society have a special place in God's heart and that he cares for those who trust in him. Um, And Jesus said as much. Let me just read a verse from the seventh chapter of Matthew. Jesus said these words, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father, who is in heaven, give what is good to those who ask him? Our biggest problem is knowing what is good. He knows how to give good gifts. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights, with whom there is neither variableness or shadow of turning, uh, from the immutable God. And and this is is set in such contrast to the world in which uh, Ruth and Boaz lived, because in Moab, from where Ruth came and the other surrounding societies, the gods were totally capricious. You, you, you know, you read the history of, of uh, gods down through time, the gods invented by humans and empowered by demons. They're very capricious. You never know what they're going to do from one minute to the next. You're totally dependent upon this god for your blessing. At the same time, you turn around and he can destroy you. But when you come to the god of the Bible, you find a god who is immutable, unchanging. He is the same forever. Yesterday, Jesus the Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. The, the Almighty Yahweh, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And, and so the love of God which emanates forth in the creation of Adam and Eve in the garden emanates forth in the uh, birth of Jesus Christ as the Goel, as the kinsman-redeemer, and, and emanates forth in our lives through our own understanding of the Scripture. Notice, I think, in this last passage of uh, the book of Ruth that the focus is really on Naomi. She is the one who had left Bethlehem full... And in her own words, returned to Bethlehem empty. But obviously she has been blessed by the Lord. And the women of Bethlehem recognize this and they credit Yahweh with having blessed in the the 14th verse. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed is Yahweh who has not left you without a Redeemer today. And may his name become famous in Israel, the Redeemer's name. Become famous in Israel. I think they were probably referring to Boaz. Delitz, who's the famous German 19th century commentator, thinks the reference is to Obed. But either way, uh, Obed will become her redeemer in the sense that he will perpetuate uh, her her line, not biologically, but her line socially and culturally, as was accepted within Israel. Uh, Naomi is not the blood grandmother of Obed because Boaz is the father and Ruth is the mother. And although, uh, and there's, as far as we know, no relationship uh, between Boaz and Naomi. Boaz was Elimelech, her husband's relative. Now, that's not saying they weren't really distant cousins somehow because they were all a clan. I mean, they're all part of the tribe of, of Judah. So, in that sense, there's a distant relationship here, but no direct relationship. But nevertheless, culturally, she is the grandmother. And as far as the Israelites were concerned, she is the grandmother. DNA is irrelevant uh, in in this. They hoped, it says in his passage, they hoped that his name would become famous, the Redeemer's name would become famous in Israel. And their hope would would be fulfilled in a way they couldn't even possibly have dreamed of. Not only would Boaz become famous as Redeemer of Naomi and Ruth, but as the great-grandfather of Israel's greatest King David. And, you know, it's really hard for us. David means more to Israel than George Washington means to the United States. Let me clue you. I mean, I, I believe there are probably Americans who don't even know that George Washington was a founding father of this nation. You know, But there is not a Jew who doesn't know who David was. Believe me. And on top of that, Ancestor of Messiah, the greatest hope that anybody could have would be that Messiah would come from their lineage. In this, we see, I think, the primary truth of this little book of Ruth. God had not left Naomi without a Redeemer. She thought she was without hope, that, that she was coming back to a, to a future that was no future, and yet God had not left Naomi, without a Redeemer, but of far greater magnitude. He had not left Israel or the Gentile world without a Redeemer with a capital R. Boaz was a type of Christ in that he gave himself on behalf of Naomi, of Ruth, of the lineage of Elimelech. He became their kinsman-redeemer. Nearly 1,200 years later, Jesus would give himself as the eternal go-well, the eternal kinsman, redeemer for the entire human race, not just for Naomi and Ruth. Naomi and Ruth viewed themselves before this as lost and hopeless in in the sense of, of contributing to their society and making a mark in the history of their nation. Until Boaz stood up to be their redeemer and suddenly they were somebody. Likewise, all of mankind, including you and me, were lost and without hope in this world until Jesus stood up to become our kinsman, Redeemer. Boaz sacrificed his future on behalf of Naomi and Ruth. And of course, it was no sacrifice in the long run because of the reasons we've already discussed. But Jesus gave his very life totally to the point of death, and the horrible death, that he might become our kinsman redeemer, that he might ransom us from a horrible future, not only temporally, but eternally. So what we have in Boaz is a foreshadowing of the all-encompassing redemption that Jesus would provide by becoming the Redeemer. Now, Jesus would become the Redeemer as Boaz became a Redeemer, not only for the Israelite Naomi, but for the Gentile Ruth. See, Ruth was not an Israelite. She was a Moabite. Moabites were outside the heritage of Israel. Boaz drew her in. She had, of course, become a proselyte in the sense she had chosen in her own heart and mind to follow the god of Naomi. And so you could say that she made a conversion, born again in the Old Testament sense, of following the god of Naomi. But that didn't change her heritage. She was raised a pagan, Moabitess, Gentile. And that would not change in terms of her heritage. So in this analogy... Ruth became the archetype for all Gentiles as Ruth was adopted into Israel by the grace and mercy of Boaz. So you and I have been adopted into spiritual Israel by the grace and mercy of the Jewish Messiah. Let me read a few verses from Isaiah chapter 49. Isaiah 49 verses 6 and 7. I I love these verses. They're right smack in the middle of the Jewish Bible. He says, Is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel? I will also make you a light of the nations. So my salvation shall reach to the ends of the earth. I mean, this is a clear Old Testament statement that the purpose of the Redeemer The purpose of the Messiah would be not to save Israel alone, but to save all those out to the corners of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and its Holy One, to the despised one, to the one abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes shall also bow down, because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you, the Redeemer. In uh, Galatians, Paul, who was trying to really drive home the point that we as Gentiles are adopted into Israel by faith in Christ, the Messiah of the Jews. Paul said these things in Galatians, the end of chapter 3 of Galatians. He says, "...there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, For you are all one in Jesus Christ. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So you and I are the direct recipients of the Abrahamic covenant that God made with Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. And God said to Abraham, Through you all the nations of the world shall be blessed. How could that possibly be? Because as you look at the world today, Uh, The Jews are just about the most hated of all people, or at least the most envied of all people. And yet it was through the Messiah, the Kinsman Redeemer, the capital G Goel, that God provided. Jesus Christ was a Jew by his physical birth. And it is through him that we have been enabled to be adopted into spiritual Israel, because that's the Israel that counts. Physical Israel plays an important role in in God's word and in God's plan. But it's spiritual Israel, those who have truly been redeemed, whether they be Boaz or Ruth or Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or Rachel or Leah, whoever they may be, it is those that make up the true Israel of God. And the church today is spiritual Israel in that sense. And so you and I are the recipients of this this, uh, foreshadowing in Boaz of the kinsman redeemer and the foreshadowing in Ruth the Gentile of of all of us being brought in to God's Messiah. Well, I better um, finish Ruth next week.